Hey everybody and welcome to CEO Sit Downs where I, John Cannell, your host, have sit down conversations with CEOs from all walks and all industries to hear their stories, pick their brains, and learn from their experience. On today's show, I am happy to welcome Ben Justman. Ben is the CEO and owner of Peony Lane Wine, a Colorado vineyard dedicated to making the purest wine possible by avoiding herbicides, pesticides, additives of any kind, and allowing all of their vintages to ferment naturally. In short, Ben just lets Mother Nature do its thing. In this episode, Ben and I covered a lot of territory from grapes and barrels to Bitcoin and the Lightning Network. I really enjoyed our conversation, and I really hope you do too. So, without further ado, I invite you to pull up a chair and listen in to my conversation with Ben Justman. Hello, Ben. Welcome to the show. I am thrilled to have you on. Thanks for having me, John. It's like to be here. You bet, man. Well, for starters, give the audience an idea of your background and kind of take us through the highlights leading up to where you are now. So I own and operate and winemake at a small winery in Colorado called Peony Lane. I do natural wines, so trying to keep things as close to nature as possible, like as few additives as possible, as little intervention as possible in the winemaking process. So that's what I've been doing for the last four years and kind of just coming into my own within that as starting a winery kind of has a long beginning process with making wine and then waiting two years as it ages and still trying to run the business. So um, that's where I'm at right now. And it's, uh, it's been a great journey. Sure. How did you get into that, Ben? So I grew up on the farm that I live on now. And my dad's dream was always to grow all his own food. And so we moved there when I was eight from Austin, Texas. And it was a large apple and pear organic orchard. We had two thirds of the organic pears in Colorado at one point. And so he, um, he tried out the like large fruit process. And then first year lost a ton of money and worked a ton. Second year lost a ton of money and outsourced it. So we ended up just selling off uh, some of the land and cutting down some of the apple trees just they were red delicious apple trees and no one eats red delicious apples anymore so he was looking for something to plant in one of the blocks that we had cut down the trees and there's a buddy of his was like hey plant some pinot noir grapes uh i'll buy them from from you and so three year three years into that we had our first like little crop and my dad was like, Hey, I have some grapes, buy them from me. And the guy was like, no, I don't want them till the fourth year, but I'll show you how to make wine. And so my dad wanting to make everything for himself made wine 
and was like, wow, that's 5% of the labor compared to what I've been doing for these grapevines. So he have never ended up selling the grapes and just started making wine. There was like one year where he had a ton of grapes. And so the liquor laws say you can only have a certain amount of wine per person enough to be like a, it's more than one person could ever drink in a year, but like the amount of grapes he got that year was it was the biggest year we've ever had. So way higher. So anyways, he started technically a winery at that point and got certified legal, started selling the wine and it was a big hit. Like there's, eight or 10 wineries in my area and the wine that he made in 2012 was the it wine like that was the the bottle to snag so then 2013 smaller crop but he still sold it 2014 moderate crop he still sold it and then 2015 he had one barrel go bad and in the winemaking process when the wine's in the barrel you have to add about let's just say a bottle of wine per month to keep that barrel topped off to where there's no oxygen or less oxygen it's it's not getting oxidized which destroys the wine and so he used that one barrel just happened to be that one barrel that went bad to top off every other barrel so every barrel went bad and at that point 2015 he's 68 he's he wasn't in it for the business he was in it because he had too much wine so he kind of called it quits there started selling the grapes outside of the two barrels he would make for himself and my mom and just yeah making his wine and then um so i was distant from wine i guess is my childhood was spent definitely working on the farm in the summers and i'll say the worst part the thing i hated the most was going into the vineyard to work because you're you're on your knees digging out weeds around that grapevine you stand up you walk three feet over into it again two thousand times it just was not of all things that was the least fun so i was pretty distant from the wine and then during the winemaking process was soccer season so i never i never did anything um and then I guess I got a degree in geology and then I ski bummed and then I moved to Vietnam to teach English for a year because I always wanted to travel. And I think I always had some sort of entre entrepreneurial spirit, but I never really like was given, I was always good at school, so I never really thought about like that was never, I was never forced to go a different path, but going to Vietnam, all these people were so hustly, like everyone in Vietnam has a couple side hustles or is hustling for their buddy to get them business. And it was pretty inspiring. And I was started uh, reading some books about, I think rich dad, poor dad was probably the most influential one for me. Just made me realize like, all right, cool. You should start a business. So I started a little t-shirt business that went nowhere and it made me realize that I don't really want to do any like online marketing. <laughs> I don't want to sit in front of a computer for business at all. 
but when I moved back to the US, I was like, I should use my degree or at least give it a shot. Geology was an awesome thing to study. I want to be outside. And realized that there was no career path, really. Like, if you wanted to be an entrepreneur, you don't actually do any geology. If you want to do geology, you then work for the government and you basically write thesis papers. So you go out and you do geology for like two weeks or two months and then come back and write about it the rest of the year. And I also would just suffocate working in a government environment. And so I started a couple sticker businesses with some friends and those were just side hustles, not really going anywhere, but fun, good experience, good working with, uh, with friends and just building a website and all that stuff. And then I just was on the phone with my dad one day and talking about like what I wanted to do with my life. I think I was 25 at the time. And he's like, well, you know, it costs me like $5 to make a bottle of wine and you could sell it for like 10 or 15. And I was like, those numbers check out. I could do that. And so kind of just rolled with it and went for it having never made wine before, got my liquor license. And then I made wine that fall. Um, like that was in the summer and I kind of just got my liquor license, bought some grapes. And then that fall was a hit in the road. And this is fall of what year? Fall of 2019. So I was still living in Denver and that year I I still had a, I was still working full time in geology, but I made it so I could work. I worked four 10 hour days. And then this is just during the winemaking season. So that's like maybe a month or two months where you got to, where you get the fresh grapes, you crush them, de-stem them, and then they ferment for two weeks and then you press them into barrels. And so every week it, I would work four 10 hour days, 40 hours. That night on Thursday, I would drive to Paonia for, take the five hour drive and then work the th two or three 12 hour days that it took me to get all the grape stuff done and then drive back, do the, the four day, 40 hours again. And then, so that was a month of just constant, like massive days. And then it's over, it's in barrel and that you can kind of chill at that point. So getting it started was just massive undertaking. I don't know what I'm doing. I get home and I'm like, dad, teach me how to make wine. You did this, you made some great wine. And I'm like, my dad doesn't really know what he's doing. He was just kind of going for it. I had obviously read some books leading up to this. Like I was getting the hang of things, but realistically, like I had just invested more money than I was worth on paper, um, in a business making a specialty product that I had no idea how to make. And then I was not going to see any product market fit for another two years. Within that time, I got to make another batch of wine and invest a ton more money. So first two years of the wine make of the, the winery were basically a lot of guesswork honestly, a lot of friends and winemakers and everything helping. And like, I was, I'm someone who's very comfortable being the dumbest person in the room. And I think that's a good place to be. So I 
just asked so many questions, got as much help as possible. And um, 20, basically right after everything shut down in 2020, I had already been planning on moving back home and building a house with my dad. So everything kind of worked out pretty well there. And I had less FOMO about leaving the city. Now I could never go back. But um, so I made that second year, I built a house and ran the business. And then 2021 was my first year of sale selling that 2019 wine. And I didn't have as much of it as I'd like because I had some go bad. And so, but what I did have, I sold out and everyone was tasting it. The big thing was everyone was tasting it before they bought it. There's no trickery. I wanted to be totally out there. I wanted to know if I have a good product. So I did farmer farmer's markets, had people taste it. And I was like, holy crap, I'm selling my wine for 26 or $28 a bottle, which at that time was like more than I'd ever spent on a bottle of wine. So that was like, okay, cool. You have something. And then, um, this past year, uh, it's, it's really gained some traction and I feel like I'm just kind of setting a really nice base layer to finally be able to, to move forward in a, a much bigger way. Sure. That's really admirable. That really is. So tell me though, when it comes to pricing that bottle of wine, I mean, outside of your raw materials, what exactly, how, how exactly are you going about that pricing structure for that bottle? So I'll just, generally I would say it costs me about $10, not counting any of my labor and $10 in, in materials to produce a bottle of wine. There are certain things that I am spending more money on in that, like I will buy nicer bottles, I will buy nicer labels, I will buy nicer corks. And obviously I want to buy the nicest grapes, but you spend as, I mean, I guess if you're out in Napa or something, you're spending way more than I am on grapes, but grapes end up being about $3 of that $10. And so when I'm pricing my wine, I've done a bit of reading about it, just learning how to price stuff. A lot of it's just kind of feeling people, understanding people and understanding market psychology. And if I, well, I got to put myself in front of the right customers, but I have a, I'm selling and marketing a premium product. And if it doesn't have a premium price, then it's, then people don't perceive it as that. And so I would say what I've read 90% of wine sold in the U.S. is sold below $20. And that number surely is changing as uh, the dollar devalues. But basically, like, I one, I want a higher profit margin. And that first year, that was, I kind of just, I, I've manipulated prices a decent amount. Like, I'd go to a farmer's market and um, one day I'd sell it. Like, I had a, a white wine that I sold anywhere from 17 to $24, and it sold worse at 17 than 24 and that was kind of a wake-up call for me. But the, the benefit of having a bunch of wine go bad that first year was in 2021 when I was selling my first vintage, it was like, well, I'm going to sell out. So 
I don't want like I want that to happen as late as possible, which means I could push that price high. And I don't oh, you don't want it? Cool. I'm going to sell out and I don't have anything to replace this with. So I was able to push that and get market response and not be like. They kind of relaxed that fear because it was like it it sold well enough as it was. It, I knew it was of a decent quality. I'll, I just didn't like I say that because I didn't know what a decent quality wine was like I didn't have any experience in that and so I've kind of just went for it and what I've learned is like put yourself in the right spot like I've been selling in resort towns a bunch of bunch of money coming in and sometimes as I push the price higher more people are into it it's it's kind of wild <laughs> the wine's just a funny product like that that is super interesting and it, it, it certainly throws my mind, but the same thing can be said of diamond rings. You know, if you buy a cheap diamond, people are skeptical of quality and things like that. I'm sure wine falls in that same bucket. Um, yeah, that's awesome. Good for but you. But there's guys. also the added thing of if I don't sell this wine, it becomes more valuable. So yeah, if someone like, granted, you have to know that you're going to sell it in the future, but it also gives you that feeling and you can only replace it once a year. I can only make wine once a year and then I still have to wait two years. So there's kind of this like, oh, cool. If you don't like it or if you think that's too expensive, that's fine. Like I'm going to sell it. It's going to be better in three months. So fine. So Ben, I guess my question for you is, do you ever hold some bottles back? Or do you always try to sell out? And when I say hold bottles back, I mean like knowing that they'll be worth more later down the road. Do you ever do that intentionally or you kind of just let the market guide that decision? Well, I'm only selling my second vintage right now. Okay. So I would say that I haven't really confronted this all that much. What I've, what I've done and am kind of experimenting with is like just raising the price like once i once i get down to a certain volume i'm like okay cool i'm not pushing these sales anymore they're here and the price is higher and you can only get them online or if you come to me like i'm not bringing them out most of my sales have been at farmers markets um i've got places I want to go. But right now, farmers markets are a great opportunity for me to spread my brand. And so I'm not going to bring like a case of this old vintage with me to a farmer's market. I'm going to bring what I'm trying to push because I have a ton of. And so like um, last night, I sold the last of my 2019 Pinot Noir, which is my, that was the first the first Pinot Noir I ever made. And that Pinot Noir is the most special to me because that's the grapes that I grow. So uh, that's gone for consumers. I have a ton of cases set aside. So when you say, do you ever hold cases back? Like, yeah, I have a personal stash that I will be drinking for the next 15 years. But what I've done is just like, once I get down to a certain quantity, I'll just raise the price. And most people are going to gravitate towards the younger vintage for the lower price anyway. So it's that's kind of a special thing for people that get to know my brand, get to know me and are like, Oh, I want to try this older vintage. That's cool. I'll spend more money on it because I trust Ben the winemaker because I've had his wine. I like his wines. Sure. That makes sense. Um, so 
Ben, when it came to that first vintage and getting it off your shelves, what did you see your annual sales come out to? Oh, that first vintage, I think I sold 28,000. I, I know this because I, that I've just been checking my goals, but like I sold $28,000 of wine that first year. And so that was only June, July, August, and a tiny bit of September. It was all, my whole sales season. Released the wine like just in time for farmer's markets. And then I sold out essentially by the end of September to the point where like I had a few cases of everything and just raised the price and I had no, I had no online sales traffic or anything. So pretty much just called it good for the year, uh, mostly out of wine. And so that's like, I had to get a job to support myself. Um, So I moved to Telluride last year and worked at a restaurant and learned a ton about wine. I mean, you work in a fancy French restaurant and you do wine classes with the sommelier. I was like, wow, this is some serious career development here. Um, but the biggest thing there for me was they bought my wine. They, we did it along with the taste test from, um, we did a Bordeaux taste test and I had a Cab Sauve, which is a big grape grown in that region of France. And the sommelier was like, I'd sell that. We'd sell that here. And so he or he bought a case from me at market price, which was great for me because I was like, I can't discount it, dude. I have three cases of this left. Um, so he brought just market price, a case, and then I was serving at that restaurant selling my wine for $75 a bottle to people and they were liking it. And so I was like, holy crap, one, confidence to raise the price, two, I think I have something. So... Um, and what a what a moment of vindication to actually see that transpire in a in a classy ritzy kind of setting such as that. Yeah, if only I had some more wine to sell at that point. I had to yeah. wait another <laughs> few months to have anything. So, so so I'm curious though. When those folks tried it, when the sommelier tried it, could he tell right off the bat that it was a natural product? It was a natural wine. I would say that he didn't really have a a chance to do that, okay. just because he knew what I was doing. Um, oh gotcha like it wasn't a totally blind thing gotcha okay so so you had you had to do all that do you still have that job are you balancing that are you fully back in the wine biz so that was just seasonal ski town ends in april and then so i moved back home to paonia in april and i that's like still a bit of free like I'll say I was working on wine business the whole time. You're applying to farmer's markets, you're doing business development stuff, but job at the restaurant four or five nights a week and, and skiing and winters are a bit more chill and you go back once a month to top off the barrels. But yeah, in April I moved back to Paonia and just kind of started prepping for the next farmer's market season. I had to design new labels, get those printed, get everything applied and make sure it just all set to go and also just work on the farm a little bit. And then farmer's market season started in May, really in earnest in June. And then June, July, August, September, I started, I was doing, I started out doing five farmer's markets a week. That is like 
wake up in Peonia, load up, drive out one to two and a half hours to the farmer's market, sell wine all day, drive home. Um, that was day after day that, I mean, like giant days, very brutal. Um, I like sales. I like talking to people, but at a certain point <laughs> you're just, you're just done. Uh, but I was selling a ton of wine. Like I was really psyched on, on how things were going. And then I had one farmer's market just got shut down. And then a second one I found an employee for. And so that was one of my goals for this past summer was just to at least get my feet wet having an employee. And so this was a friend of a friend had met him before and he ran one farmer's market for me. So in Telluride, there's kind of two towns. There's a resort town and the main town. The resort town's farmer's market was on Wednesday. The main town was on Friday. So before I had him, I was driving to Telluride, doing the farmer's market Wednesday, camping for two nights and doing the farmer's market Friday, and then had Saturday, Sunday farmer's markets. Um, Cause I was going insane and driving that much is why. And mm -hmm. so he took over the Wednesday, saved me two whole days, and I would just restock him every Friday. And it was great. I mean, getting a getting money sent to my account, not working, killer. I understand why people have employees. Yeah. <laughs> so so when it came to um th that employee was kind of just a temporary thing, just to handle the farmer yeah. market, farmer's market Maybe season. Two, three months on Wednesdays, I gotcha. would give him a portion, a uh, like commission slash a base pay. So sure. So so as we record this here toward the end of 2022, Ben, what are your financials looking like? Because one question I always like to ask um, entrepreneurs who are several years into their business. Um, have you taken a salary for yourself? That's always the question. Or are you just taking every dime that comes in and reinvesting it back in? What, where, where are you at in that whole um, decision-making process? Um, I think I, I've basically just like lived. I didn't take a set salary. I kind of just whatever I need to live, I was, I was living off of. Um, and I had to reinvest a ton into the business. So like, let's see it, it, you have to, you, you make your money. I'm making my money in the summers and then every fall I know I have huge expenses. So this year was interesting. I had to, I had had to take out a loan in order to have enough credit on my credit card to max out my credit card in the, in the spring, because I was worried about supply chain issues and bottles being available. So I ordered 20 or $30,000 of glass bottles before I had any money from the season because I, you know, I was just, I was just ski bumming the winter before didn't have any, any nest egg. I was hoping to build that nest egg through the summer, pay for the bottles, pay for the wine and everything. So started out negative, turned that positive pretty, pretty quick was psyched on my sales. And then everything I had saved up is, is straight back into the business. So, um, 40 or $50,000 on grapes and spending money on, 
Um, I will be spending money on labels and corks and labor and, but it turns into everything's going back into the business real quick uh, because it's on this two-year timescale where I'm doing less sales than I'm making wine because I'm trying to let my wine age. I mean, even in the last three, four months, I've noticed a market difference in the quality. It just gets better. And so as I push that threshold of, no, I don't want to sell this wine until it's this old, that pushes my financials because I'm, I'm always trying to build and extend, but I have to do it on a two plus year timescale, realistically, like three or four, if I'm talking about getting financial returns from that wine, two years I was to just, release. So I was just about to ask that, is two years the minimum? So I started out at 18 months, a year okay. in barrel, six months in bottle. And I'm pretty much sticking with a year in barrel. I made who knows, I may like decide to change that at a certain point, but it works well and I don't have room to hold more barrels to do sure. more. Um, but I've noticed my dad thought that his wine got better at two years, specifically like two years, it turned a corner. And like I said, in the last three, four months coming up on the full two year anniversary of my 2020 vintage, which is what I've really been familiar trying all the way through all this summer, that just, got so much better recently that I'm like, I need to stick with this. And so, yeah, you kind of balance this, this level of cool. I need sales, but also I never want to sell out of wine. I always want to be able to push it. Um, so you're, you're messing with pricing there for speed of sales, but also like you're just, I don't know. It's a different, it's a different time frame. Like I'm just, trying to I'm tr also I'm trying to build a business that is just a great life for me um good lifestyle and is also successful throughout as long as I want to do this so taking the patient route just seems like the way to go and I'm forced so, into it <laughs> yeah yeah so my question for you is were you always like um, from early on kind of innately a long-term thinker or is making your own wine turned you into a long-term thinker? I would say I always wanted to be a long-term thinker and there were certain things that I would definitely think long-term about. Um, thus the geology background, but that was just so interesting to me learning about how uh, landscapes change over hundreds of thousands to millions of years. That just was like so perfect for me. But uh, I would say I've been an extremely unpatient person most of my life. I've kind of just thrown myself into things and do it, thus starting a winery, having never made wine before. But I've had, at this point, around 15 concussions. And I've always been like a really fast skier. And um, everything I do, I just kind of go for and don't think about consequences or didn't and so at a certain point like with all those concussions I had built my life to focus on skiing not that I was like ever going professional or anything but just like that was my passion that's what I want to build my life around and there just got to be a certain point where it was like dude you're just like you're as good of a skier as you're ever going to be because you can't keep pushing yourself like this because of these brain injuries and so that was a multi-year process of like learning how to just be like, take a breath, 
do you want to do this? Um, and so that was probably the start of my slowing down. And then <clears throat> it's it's been a wild process in my life that that was probably like started in 2017. And then in <clears throat> 2019 started the winery and knew this was going to be at least two to four years before I really get going. Um, and then in 2020, I started building a house with my dad, which is very much like every very much like feeling I'd done construction projects before, but this was going to be my house. And like, I was building it and being like, my kids are going to be running around here. That's cool. Um, so that really got me in this long-term, um, time frame. And then right around that time when I moved back home, I moved in with one of my best friends from high school who, um, was a Bitcoiner and I was really into personal finance and all that stuff, but like hadn't taken Bitcoin seriously. And it turns out that was kind of like just what I was looking for as in 2019, when they, they crushed interest rates, my whole financial paradigm, like the model I built for myself had just totally shifted and I was looking for an answer. So I think you've probably come across a lot of Bitcoiners that are like, yeah, my, my time preference has totally lowered. And that was kind of just the final piece of the puzzle for me in lowering my time preference but it's been kind of this this long journey of just slowing down a little bit and just trying to build for the long term and so wine is just such a great vehicle to have as a business to build for the long term and build a life that i want it's uh it's fits really well i love it and for those listening who might not get the jargon so to say um a low time preference means you are not concerned about the immediate future you're looking to the long term. Um, so on that note, though, Ben, let's let's talk about Bitcoin because you, and I think this is pretty unique, um, offer your customers the ability to pay for their wine in Bitcoin. Um, tell me how you came to that decision and uh, how that's gone. Has there been much interest in that? So it's that decision has kind of changed the trajectory of my business and has been so great for me. Basically, I I didn't, like I wasn't totally, de I didn't really quite understand, I don't know, it takes a long time to really get Bitcoin. And it totally is a humbling, like just flips your world upside down experience. And so in 2021, I was just really worried about uh, wine sales and knew about Bitcoin had one guy ask if I accepted crypto and I was like I'll take your Bitcoin but I didn't have any way like I didn't know what I was doing any way to accept it um, I mean I, I would have been able to but it um, and then in the winter of so that winter 2021 2022 I just didn't really have that many Bitcoiners in my life. And I was kind of just like dying to be able to talk about it because it I was just so sucked in. And so the Bitcoin Miami conference was on my birthday and I kind of just said, screw it and dropped way too much money and went um, this past April. And that kind of just like clicked for me. I was like, okay, cool these people are solid. I need to put myself around these people and this energy in this community is incredible. Um, I'm being surrounded by 
40,000 people that are clapping when this macroeconomic analyst just says something smart. Like, this is ridiculous. I'm, I'm weird, but like, there's also weird people. And so that kind of clicked everything for me is like, you need to start doing this and started accepting Bitcoin for farmers market sales. And then in it's liquor laws in the United States make it a little hard to accept Bitcoin because I have to have a license in every state I want to sell to or use a third party provider that, that I technically I sell to them. They sell to the, the customer. Um, and they, the one that dominates the industry that I use does not have any Bitcoin acceptance features. So then I went to another conference, uh, called the beef initiative conference that was held 20 minutes from my house. I couldn't believe that these Bitcoin people were coming to me, to my small town. So I was a part of it and gave a tour of my winery for it. And, um, there was some people there that just, this is what they do. They set up businesses with, to accept Bitcoin. And so I am now using a, an app called Oshi and their CEO set me up at that conference. And so what I do with them is I sell gift cards to my website. So they buy a gift card with Bitcoin. I get paid that Bitcoin and then they apply that gift card to my website. And so I give a discount on that. I give customers a 10% discount because I just want to spread Bitcoin adoption. Um, and also whenever someone buys something with from me with Bitcoin, I always, if it's in person, at least I always say it's the most expensive bottle of wine you'll ever buy. Um, <laughs> That's great. But yeah. So I've been kind of posting on Twitter, just, I, I, you know, zero, zero followers or attention or anything. Um, and people were asking me, like, can I buy your wine with Bitcoin? You're a Bitcoiner. Why can't you do this? And I was like, well, you know, there's all like these, these issues. And so, um, once those guys set me up, then people are like, oh yeah, cool. I'll buy your wine. If I can buy it in Bitcoin, that's awesome. And that's kind of, that's just been accelerating uh, to an amazing degree. And it's been really cool to be a part of the creator economy within that because the, the Bitcoin community is like so incredibly supportive and wants to build each other up and everything. And, um, also, yeah, just great people. Like I started out putting a Bitcoin accepted here sign being like, I just want to, like, if there's a Bitcoiner walking around, I just want to meet him, you know, I just want to meet friends. Cause like I said, I went to that conference. And I was like, these are my people. And it turned into people like obviously any Bitcoin that walks by stopping and paying in Bitcoin, but it turned into, um, this, I had one guy drive five hours. He had a, another like excuse, but he basically drove five hours to come buy my wine with Bitcoin. Um, and like, not just that, like we chatted for a while, like it was great to, to meet this guy. And I learned so much from these people. Um, but the, like I said, just the, the community, the, the enthusiasm, it's been really cool to be people's first Bitcoin transaction. Like I've never, like I've never bought anything with Bitcoin before. And it's like, it's really cool for that. So I would just, I would say that it didn't affect my in-person sales, which is 
by far the majority of my business. I mean, I'd get maybe one or two Bitcoin transactions a week. Um, I would hold all that Bitcoin. So I guess if you're being cynical, you'd say you uh, all that wine you sold at, at $50,000 Bitcoin for Bitcoin, you gave them a hell of a deal. And I still would tell them it's the most expensive bottle of wine they'll ever buy. Um, but it has absolutely changed my online sales. And so, like I said, when I started that t-shirt company, I realized I don't want to do anything online as far as like marketing and sitting in front of a computer. Like that's just not a lifestyle I want to live. And so I've been getting a lot of online sales and I just kind of exist on Twitter. Like just am myself. Like I'm very conscious that I'm, I'm not my business profile. I'm not trying to be an advertiser, dude. I'm just, but this is what I do and I want to share it. And a lot of people are super interested in, in one, making their first purchases with Bitcoin and also supporting another Bitcoiner. And I mean, everyone who's bought it has loved the wine and I've had a ton of repeat customers. So, um, I don't know. It becomes kind of a, like, I want to, so in this, in people buying my product for Bitcoin, I've also wanted to buy products for, for Bitcoin. So like the, and I've had a lot of people offer to trade me stuff. So like I'll send them wine, they send me whatever they make. Um, and that's cool. But on the Oshi app, they have all these companies that, that offer products and services for Bitcoin. I've found a couple that I'm like, like I buy Bitcoin coffee exclusively now because why would I give my money to someone else when I could get buy good coffee from a Bitcoiner? Like I'm just going to support a sure. Bitcoiner over anyone else if I if it's a reasonable product. And so, I think a lot of people feel the same way about about my business, and um, it's pretty cool to be part of that circular economy. Yeah, and I will say, um, Ben. That, that's how I found out about you is the Bitcoin community on Twitter and somehow you popped up and I thought, man, what this guy is doing is really interesting. And uh, that that's just terrific. And I was also at the Bitcoin 2022 conference in Miami. Nice. And I mean, to your point about the energy, it was it was crazy. I mean, there was there was a moment where I was walking down the sidewalk and I'm not even exaggerating. I heard one language on my left a different language on my right, none of which were English. Um, and I was just like, wow, this is this is bigger than I had originally thought. And I knew it was big, but bigger than I had originally mm-hmm. thought. Um, so b- back to the Bitcoin, um, Bitcoin implementation within your business. So if I understand this correctly, you don't use any payment providers like Stripe or do you still? So as for Bitcoin specifically, well, I use just overall online sales. How about? So, I have the company that I use for the that third party, which even for Bitcoin transactions, even though they don't process those, is called Vino Shipper, and that is like all of my online sales goes through them, makes compliance easier. Otherwise, I would be getting a license in every state, and like. Dealing with bureaucracy is my biggest headache. Like I'm not going to apply to 48 liquor licenses. Um, and so I use Square for like in-person point of sales. And 
this company called Ibex or Ibex Pay. It does the back end from Oshi. And they were also at that Beef Initiative Conference that I mentioned. And so they set me up with that. And that's I use that for in-person Bitcoin point of sales as well. So that is just a, a point of sale feature where they'll, they accept lightning transactions. So instant Bitcoin transactions. They accept, let's say I do 10 in, in a day. They accept all 10. And then at the end of the day, they send me one on-chain transaction to gotcha. whatever wallet I want. That way I can accept lightning transactions, get paid instantly, and then get everything sent on-chain to whatever wallet I want without my employees having access to my Bitcoin. So normally in a wallet, they would be able to send and receive, but Ibex Pay gives me an option so they can only receive to whatever dollar amount. And I could choose within that for Ibex to pay me, like let's say 50% in dollars. If I wanted 50% Bitcoin, 50% dollars. And I would say that if I was doing a majority of my sales in Bitcoin, that would be a necessary thing for me. I, I can't run a business 100% on Bitcoin right now. And I think if you can run a business 100% on Bitcoin right now, the only reason you're able to do that is because you either have a ton of money in dollars already, or you've been in Bitcoin for a long time and seen huge gains. And so it just doesn't matter as much. Um, yeah. It's pretty unrealistic to to run a business specifically on Bitcoin. But I will say that anytime anyone buys something from me in Bitcoin, it stays in Bitcoin. Yeah. And I think that that's, well, I don't know, you run your business however you want. But like, I think Bitcoiners appreciate that. Because there's a reason they're not paying you in Bitcoin because they want you to have more dollars. They're paying you in Bitcoin because they want you to have more Bitcoin. Yeah, I, I'd agree with that. At the present moment in which we find ourselves economically, um, you still need a little fiat to to take mm -hmm. care of certain transactions. I can't remember which Bitcoiner said it best, but your checking account should be fiat. Your uh, your savings account should be Bitcoin, and I think that's a pretty good rule for most folks to follow. Um, and and before uh, before I uh, upload this, I want to get the link for those companies that you mentioned, Ibex specifically. I think that's really neat, that whole idea of just receiving, keeping your funds safe in that way. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, that's awesome, man. Like more power to you. I'm so glad to hear that Bitcoin adoption is getting into getting into wine. Um, I think that's terrific. But, but another uh, question really Ben I had for you was what what sets the natural wine making process apart um, because I'm sure a lot of folks are very very accustomed to you know just the brands that they find in the store um, but what what sets yours apart and why why do you find that so important why is it a priority for you so I one kind of just learned from my dad in this in where um, he's the kind of guy that is just nature knows best, let things go um, and it'll all work out. And so I kind of just went in with, with that mindset originally, like learning from him how to make wine. And he was, he's pretty extreme in that regard. And so um, that's my baseline. And now um, 
whenever someone tells me to add something to the wine, I'm very much like, okay, here's my baseline. I got to really need to add that thing to the wine to, uh, to want to do it because natural wine is really just wine at its core. It's maybe more fancy processes and like better equipment to do everything so you can get a better product, but it's really the wine style, the wine making style that people were doing for hundreds, thousands of years. And you get a much more localized flavor. So I use the yeast that lives on the grapes in my vineyard to ferment everything. Literally just pick the grapes, take out the stems, grapes get crushed and I don't add anything. They just start fermenting in two weeks. And to do that, you have to have the baseline of great farming practices. Like you have to have the baseline of not spraying pesticides, herbicides, um, bringing a ton in from outside. Like any mulching we do is from our chicken coop. It's all from our space. And you could generate, it's a lot easier to do on a small scale, I'll say, but you can definitely do it at much, there are natural wines made at much larger scales as well. Um, so to ferment with natural yeast, you get a, you get a much more unique flavor, but to do that, you have to farm really healthily. And so you have to have a really healthy vineyard, which means high quality grapes. And it all is kind of a feedback loop that builds on itself. So if I have high quality grapes, pretty unique flavor, then in the winemaking process, I can be pretty hands off because I know that my baseline product is very good and I'm going to get a, a good, a good product. If I just take my hands off, like I'm more concerned with screwing something up, screwing up the natural process on my own than I am worried about it not being good wine. And so within that, I'm basically not adding anything to the wine during the winemaking process. And if you start paying attention to wine bottles, you realize that there's no ingredients list required. And I think most people just assume, oh, cool, yeah, it's just grapes. But there is so much stuff added to wine, to most wines. I can't really like go and explain all of them because I've just made a point of not learning about it because I'm not interested in in manipulating my wines and adding a ton of preservatives and these flavor modifiers and texture modifiers and acidity modifiers. It's like, I just, whatever my grapes produce is the beauty of my vineyard. So in my experience, those manipulations, those additions are what make people feel bad after they drink wine. Just in that, like, if I drink the same amount of my wine versus the same amount of some mass produced wine, I feel much worse the next day drinking that mass produced wine. So to me, the only difference, yeah, there's grapes, but it's all the other crap in it that's going to make me feel bad. So with natural wine, I get a more unique flavor and I feel better after drinking it. And so if you combine that unique flavor with maybe food grown from that valley, it's just a, you're just so much more connected to the land and that's a, it's a more interesting way to live life for me. Sure. Sure. 
And I applaud you for it because I'm sure the temptation to just go the other way and to be more efficient and to follow the crowd um, is strong. So I applaud you for that. Actually not. Um, because, because I got into this with no knowledge and learned from my dad with that baseline, it would actually be more work for me to learn about those other things. So that's just kind of unique, but I'm, I'm just not, there's no motivation for me to, to devalue my product. So terrific, man. That's awesome. Um, but Ben, we're recording this here in the end of 2022, 2023 is almost upon us. Um, what goals do you have going forward for your business? What things are you going to try to accomplish in this upcoming year? And, uh, yeah. What are your thoughts there? So everything shifts just as you see new opportunities and everything. I will say that I started the winery kind of just going for it. It's like, I want to have a business and I'll figure this out. And then a little while in, I realized like, wow, I'm not passionate about wine and I'm supposed to do this for the rest of my life. And I'll say that like, I have grown a gained a passion for wine and have learned about it and got the more I know, the, the more interesting it is to me. Um, and it's a, such a cool product to have a business on and run on that low time preference. But in that, I realized like, okay, cool. So you can't, if you're building this business for your life, just to make you happy, how are you going to do this if you're not passionate or weren't passionate about that base baseline product? Um, and so that took some soul searching to realize like, okay, what am I passionate about? And can I get that out of this business? And so a couple things. One, I realized like this can just be the baseline. This can be a starter point and I can add other business, businesses on top of this. Like I can add a blind tour business. I can add just a general tour business. And the biggest thing is I can add a tasting room, restaurants, or um, whatever community space that I want to add with wine is like just such a good entry point. That's how I make the money. But what I'm doing is I'm creating this community space because I realized that I'm passionate about people. I'm passionate about community. And so I live in my hometown of 2000. It's changed a lot over the years, but it's still relatively sleepy, which is why I leave part of the reason I leave for the winters to, to move to a ski town and work in restaurants. But um, if I'm, going to live there for the, the rest, generally the rest of my life. Like I already built my house there. It's small enough that I can affect change within it. So the next step, like this next year, I'm still going to be at farmer's markets. I'm still going to be selling mostly that way. Hopefully have a couple more employees build out that a little bit. But the, the goal is to open up a tasting room soon. We have a building in town. I have like perfect location for it. And the great benefit of that is it's on the main street, but it's on the section of the main street that there's just no energy. And so it's kind of the end cap would bring more people into downtown Paonia and really, I think, enliven the, the downtown scene, which I think would make the town more fun for me to live in. So incentives seriously align there. Um, so there's that. And then we'll see. I don't know. I've Bitcoiners seem to like my wine. So that's kind of giving me a lot more flexibility because I was planning on like never having any online sales. 
and now they're not big or anything, but like, um, it's this, this string that I'm down to keep pulling on because I've met so many Bitcoiners that way. Um, but yeah, so tasting room, potentially restaurant, potentially these other businesses, but just building slowly is, is the only way I can really do it. I don't really want to take on any more debt. Um, I don't want to be inflexible. Like I don't want to be vulnerable in any way. If this is a business I'm trying to build for the rest of my life, I don't want to have any one bad year because base, this is at its base, somewhat a farming business. So I don't want to have one bad year, one bad frost be in any near position to ruin me. So just trying to build up that financial base at this point before I extend myself too far. And within that, this is really the first like successful business I've run. I'm 28. Like I have a ton more to learn. So if I grow too fast, I may just get out ahead of my skis. Like I don't want to grow faster than my competence level grows. So just take it one step at a time. And like, I'm very much psyched on, on where I am and how things are growing at this point. So there's no rush if, if I'm going to be doing this for a long time. Terrific, man. Absolutely terrific. But I know we're coming up on time, Ben. I can't tell you how much I enjoyed our conversation. If you would give the folks who are listening an idea of where they can learn more about your business, more about you, the whole bit. Awesome. So my wine is listed for sale and tons of information about what I do, images of the vineyard and everything on peonylanewine.com, P-E-O-N-Y. I'm also Peony Lane Wine on Instagram. And if you're interested in the, the Bitcoin part of this, uh, my Twitter is bjusty one B-J-U-S-T-Y-1. Um, where I talk about wine and Bitcoin. Um, but, oh, and then I'm available for sale in Bitcoin on the Oshi app. I appreciate everyone who does that. Like I said, I hold the Bitcoin and I'm psyched on that. Um, but it does require a couple extra steps because you have to buy the gift card on Oshi, apply it on the website, and then make a second fiat transaction to pay for shipping on the website. So been psyched for everyone who does that, but I'm also like, Look, if you pay in dollars, it's fine. <laughs> um, but I'm psyched for any adoption of the Bitcoin side. Awesome, man. Well, I can't wait for all our listeners to hear this. I'll be sure to get all those links in the show notes. But once again, just know how grateful I am for you giving me some of your time today. And I can't wait to see what you do down the road. It's going to be great. Cheers. Great to chat with you. You bet, Ben. Take care. Whether you allowed us to keep you company on your ride home from the office, during your workout, or as you were getting ready for the day, I appreciate you taking the time to listen to this conversation. Be sure to subscribe and follow CEO Sitdowns on whatever podcast platform you use, and I'd really appreciate it if you could leave a review, as it helps others find the podcast in the future. And if today's episode called to mind a friend or a family member who you think would really enjoy today's conversation, go ahead and share this episode with them. I'd certainly appreciate it, and hopefully they will too. Thanks again for listening, and may you have a pleasant day wherever you may be.